Chapter 7, Part 2 of Shores of the Polar Sea, a narrative of the Arctic expedition of 1875-6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Cantoni. Shores of the Polar Sea by Edward Lawton Moss. Chapter 7 Part 2 Dawn in the latitude of Floberg Beach is a season rather than an hour, and the growing brightness skirts round the whole horizon almost impartially. This is a sketch very early in March, looking north at midnight. At the time it was made, the spirit thermometers on the small stand, and on the tripod seen to the left of the ship, registered minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit. The outlines were made without much difficulty, with a pencil pushed through two pairs of worsted mitts. The colors were laid on in the warmth and candlelight between decks, and verified by repeated trips into the cold. In regions where wind could crush the ice together, or where open water existed to leeward, Arctic ships have more than once been blown to sea with the ice of their winter quarters, and, as a precautionary measure, our ship was secured to shore by chain cables raised at intervals on casks to prevent them sinking into the ice. Nowhere is it more true that the low sun makes the color than in the Arctic regions. The ice and snow that are wearily white in midsummer glow with all sorts of opaline tints in the sunrise light of March. The sketch is from amongst the Flobergs to seaward of the ship. The sides of the berg in the center have been worn into columns and alcoves by the surface floods of some former summer, but it has since been forced higher on the beach and into shallower water. Snowdrifts fill up all the gorges and ravines amongst the bergs, and are in some places so hardened by wind and infiltration of seawater that tidal motion cracks and fissures them, especially round the grounded bergs. If any part of Arctic life deserves the sentiment and romance that have been lavished on it, it is returning daylight. However practical and matter-of-fact a man may be, a long spell of Egyptian darkness will make him glad to see daylight again, and he may well be excused a little unnecessary emotion at the dawn of the pale young year. With us, the day and the year were all but the same. When daylight was once established, there was no more real night, though the sun made thirty-seven more and more shallow dips below the horizon before rising spirally through the heavens in perpetual day. Winter was our night, and the morning and the evening were spring and autumn. As February advanced, we began to have light enough to walk about on shore, up to this time we had labored under two disadvantages that had not oppressed our predecessors, namely, the extra noon darkness and the softness of the snow. Both together rendered it utterly impossible to indulge in exercise except along the well-trodden half-mile, with empty meat tins for guideposts, or backwards and forwards to the shore along the track of the sledges carrying stores to and from Markham Hall. It was not till we were able to walk about a little at noon that we got impatient of the darkness and began to realize its length and intensity. The transition from darkness to daylight 
was like recovery from a long and somewhat delirious illness. As the light increased, the sky displayed all the colors of the rainbow, from rosy red at the horizon to cold violet overhead, and the ice, borrowing the spectrum sky tints, assumed hues of indescribable delicacy and beauty. A few hundred yards ahead of the ship, some acres of flow had stranded and split into bergs with narrow lanes between them. The cliff-like walls afforded convenient sections of the ice, where its varying saltness and its strange lines of air dust could be favorably examined. Accordingly, these narrow clefts were well explored, and in them especially the low light produced most magical changes of opaline color. Such effects are unsketchable. Form there was none, but while the low light lasted, the tints of the ice vista were incredible. A brilliant transformation scene would look commonplace and natural beside them. Our walks were not carried very far from the ship before we discovered that other animals had begun, like ourselves, to take advantage of the returning daylight. Even while the darkness was at its greatest, men carrying lanterns to and from the waterberg or the shore occasionally noticed the little lines of curved scratches left by lemming. What the little creatures could have been doing out on the floes we could not understand. Their tracks usually led into deep cracks and fissures of the ice. Perhaps they found warmer quarters near the water. After daylight, one could hardly walk half a mile on shore without coming across their burrows, little circular tunnels leading long distances under the snow, either to saxifrage pastures or to warm nests made of grass that must have taken them a long time to collect. Sometimes we came across them sitting near their burrows. They were about the size of a small rat, almost tailless, and as yet in their yellowish-white winter fur. Later on, ermine tracks were met with, but they were much less common. They were generally found pursuing lemming, but upon one occasion it was quite plain that the ermine had followed a hare. Of course, whoever met a hare track was bound to follow it. Three hares remained in our neighborhood. They lived in burrows in the snow five or six feet long. Two were shot, but the third would never allow us within rifle range. On February 29th, the sun rose, but those who climbed to Cairn Hill to see him were disappointed. The high, flat land southwards shut him from view. On the 2nd of March, however, when we mustered, as usual, by sledge crews on the floes beside the ship, bright sunlight lit up the tops of the higher floebergs and shone on the upper parts of the ship's rigging. The Greenland mountains were already pink, and as the sun approached the gap between them and Cape Rawson, half his orb was seen for a moment by a few who climbed the rigging to look for it. The others thought they could well wait another day after waiting so long. The month after sunrise was a busy time for all hands, for there was much to be done before the whole strength of the expedition was diverted to the sledging campaign. Although there was broad daylight outside the ship, the work inside had still to be done by lamp and candlelight. In one place a group of figures might be seen surrounded by open packing cases, carefully weighing out sledging rations, and dividing the daily allowances in little bags made of fancy calico intended for theatrical purposes. 
in another an officer and the captain of his sledge might be seen filling a large gutta-percha box with the stores to be placed in depot for his return journey everywhere through the ship men were busy with needle and thread making many small improvements in the fit of their duffel suits or holland overalls some were adding linen leggings to their moccasins others strengthening the soles with thick soft leather cut from the top of their fishermen's boots the general sledging outfit was of course rigorously adhered to but each man made such small changes in the fit of his clothes as his autumn experience suggested during the darkness the snow had hardened considerably in many places a sledge now travelled readily where it would have sunk out of sight in the autumn and as early as the twenty eighth february an exercise party travelling with a dog sledge to the south reached in a few hours the spot from which our autumn sledges had returned baffled after a ten days struggle towards the discovery but the snow was not hardened everywhere there were many drifts and patches along the shore that were not easily crossed except on snowshoes with these travelling over smooth snow was easy and a man could even pull along another seated on a small sledge faster than a third could wade beside them no arctic expedition had hitherto used snowshoes though the germans three hundred miles south of us on the east coast of greenland had found it necessary to extemporize rough substitutes during the winter some of our men made two excellent copies of a well-worn pair presented by dr ray to one of our officers these were at times most useful but much of our travelling was over snow and ice so rugged that no one however expert would have attempted snowshoeing constant preparation for the sledging soon superseded the winter evening routine school was suspended and the theatrical season closed on twenty fourth february with a very successful burlesque written by our chaplain on the following thursday the weekly lectures were concluded by an address from the captain on the sledging work we were about to undertake and on the prospects that lay before us those prospects were not promising however we looked at them they were no more encouraging than when we first rounded cape rawson and saw no land to the northwards the very first elements of success were absent but it was still possible that the land might trend to the north somewhere beyond cape joseph henry it was possible too that sledges journeying northward over the floes might reach some land where depots could be left and which might next year serve as a fresh base for poleward sledges a few in the ship cherished a third hope founded on the character of our ice it seemed not unlikely that if sledges could penetrate that zone of the floating ice cap which had been fractured year after year by contact with the shores they might reach a broad mass of almost continental ice rounded into hills and valleys by ages of summers but not offering insuperable obstacles to poleward travel if the floes had not been in rapid motion all the autumn and if sir leopold mcclintock's method of pushing forward sledges on depots deposited in the autumn could have been applied to the polar pack we might start from the land with fair hopes of practical success but as it was our sledges would have to leave shore carrying all their fuel and provisions and therefore greatly limited in point of time 
for no men can drag more than between forty and fifty days provisions and fuel together with tent bedding cooking gear and sledge the system of supporting sledges was still applicable by it additional sledges would fall back from the main party when say one-third of their provisions were expended retaining a third to return on and filling up the advancing sledges with the remainder we were by no means certain that the motion of the flows would not even now prove a serious obstacle even as late as january they were heard roaring and crushing in the darkness to seaward and their pressure forced our protecting floeberg somewhat shoreward cracking and buckling up the flows and heeling the ship over four degrees for months however little sign of motion had been apparent except at tidal periods when it sometimes came with curious suddenness as if the tide wave had all at once overcome the resistance of the ice that bound it for example the morning of the twelfth of march was beautifully calm and still and few but those whose special duty it was knew that a high tide was due that day i was engaged picking out some stones grooved and scratched by ice motion from an overturned floeberg not far from the ship when suddenly a curious faint sound came from the northwest at first a dull indistinct hum but in a moment it grew nearer and louder like the rush of a railway train then as it swept down along the beach the ice cracked visibly in every direction with a sharp rattle like musketry and a loud rush of water under the flows came so suddenly and unexpectedly that i ran to the top of the berg with a vague idea that the ice was breaking up but in a moment the tide wave had passed off to the southwest and all was still again end of chapter seven part two Recording by Linda Cantoni.